Good morning. I think it's still morning, Sarah Hoffler. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. We meet again. We do. Um, So when I was uh, queuing this up on Zencaster, which is what we use to record, no one's, we're not promoing it. We're just saying that's what we do. Um, It's number 42. Doesn't 42 have like some sort of significance? It always seems like it's a significant number. Really? Well, there's 40 seconds. It's significant in that it's our best uh, episode yet. That's it. it. We just, let's cut to the chase. 42 always signals greatness. Um, it was actually, uh, was that a good year in my life? I can't remember now. I think also there's that book, I think, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think the number 42 was important there, but I didn't read the book, so maybe I'm wrong. Oh I'm sure our, our listeners can, oh, forget it. Who cares? We're, we're starting rumors about yeah, the number we 42. Well, that's what this whole thing is going to be about. It's all going to be about rumors. No, um, actually, so I, I yesterday. Oh, the number 42 from Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy represents yes. all meaning, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. So we're changing the name of this. Changing the name of this podcast to the 42s, but you know, you knew that already. That was, you know, you don't need to say what's implied. So we, uh, we, we're already 42, eternally 42. So yesterday I defaulted to something I default to, which is wanting to, uh, to dip, like dip completely. Oh, I thought you said Depp, Johnny Depp. Yeah. Well, no, that's you. Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) Mine is to dip. Mine is like to dip, and no one ever will see me or hear from me again. And and only oh, I do daughter. that all the time. Oh, I do it all the time. Oh my god, yeah. I'm withdrawing from society. I'm like yeah. half hermit. Yesterday was a big dip day, but um, in any case, uh, I have a friend um that we're gonna link to him. His name is Chris Andrade. He was uh, actually was at a dinner party that we had up uh, upstate on Saturday night. And he's got this really cool um, site called Walking the World. I think he just changed the name of it to Chris Andrade's Walking the World. But he, he this is what he does. Like he he just gets on a plane. He rents a hotel room, like a kind of a crappy hotel room, like let's say in Hanoi or wherever. And he walks like 12 miles and just like through the streets, looking at parks, people talking to things, eating stuff, and then he goes back to his hotel. And then the next day he does it again in a different direction. And he does it for like two or three weeks at this one location. And he hmm. he's done this now for years. Anyway, I don't know. We were we were DMing about something today, and he's like, you know, Nancy, I've got two cities that I think you should you should go to and do this. And uh he said they are Buenos Aires and Lima. Know anything about these uh cities? What was the first one? Buenos Aires. Oh, Buenos Aires. Well, I went to Lima very briefly. I was in Peru in my 20s. But, you know, back when I was there, this is uh, like the year 2000, Lima, which was the the most, you know, I think it's still the biggest city in Peru. Like we, we you would just get pounded with these, like it's dangerous. Don't go out, you know, don't go out there. So when I was traveling through there, I just stayed in the hotel room. Oh, so that wasn't exactly, it was not really going to Lima. I mean. Oh, no, really. I had pizza in Lima. I had delivery pizza. <laughs> That's, I can hardly say that I went to Lima. And my apologies to anybody from Lima that are going to say it wasn't dangerous. What the hell's wrong with you? All I can tell you is that I was 27 years old and a, a kind of new to traveling internationally. And so when, you know, you kind of take the word of what people are saying on the travel trail and people were like, they got me freaked out about Lima. So. Well, I don't. I don't think I have time to to go there uh, because I am going to be traveling in November. But um, I, I'm I'm sorely tempted to get on a plane uh, tomorrow. But I will I will stay here and do my duty for the forty twos. Um, so one thing you and I have super enjoyed are watching the same 
television shows or movies and that especially ones that are like cultural flashpoint stuff, sure. whether we have a similar take on it or a completely uh, contrary take on it. Um, and I think we both love media. I mean, it's just, it's fun. It's fun to consume. So there was something, um, there's something big uh, right now in the culture. And you asked me if I watched it, do you want to, do you want to tell us what that was? Sure. Well, yeah, I asked you if you had watched the the Dahmer show, the and Jeffrey if- Dahmer show. There were two of them. There were two of them because there's a documentary uh, and then there's also a Netflix show by Ryan Murphy, the creator of Glee and Pose and all sorts of other shows. Which I think is like 10 episodes or something it's like 10 that. 10 episodes, yeah. Right, right. So, and then the, the nonfiction one um, is three episodes. It's very, very much like um, the John Wayne Gacy uh, three episode thing, which was, you know, they actually might be called the same thing, Conversations with a Killer. They, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I about that. that's the series name. So when I watched the one on Gacy, which was important for me because I had interviewed Gacy and I was under the impression that he had never, ever actually admitted to anyone what he did. Um, but I was wrong. But, but interestingly, so was everyone else because we had never heard these tapes. These tapes mm-hmm. were made, um, you know, when he was newly imprisoned and they sent a, I think it was like a police psychologist and and it was, she spoke, it was very interesting. It was, it was, I found it to be extremely well done, meaning the Gacy one. It was sort of like a very well done discovery ID. I don't know if people have watched this show, sort of like a, they're, 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 you know, the kind of stuff that's on TV and it's a little bit thrilling and there's a little bit of music, but, but at the same time, you can really pack a lot of content into it. And I, I, I did get a lot out of the Gacy one. So you asked me if I'd watched the, um, the, uh, Netflix series and, and I hadn't, and I kind of didn't, find myself particularly drawn like I, I knew I wanted to watch I, I know before. I well I saw it like when it came out in late September it was sort of everywhere on Twitter like everybody had opinions about it and I just I averted my eyes I don't know there was something very to me first of all there was something a little bit tiresome about the subject of Jeffrey Dahmer well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it's it's true. You know, we are we do have a fascination with murder. We have a fascination with true life murder. True crime is everywhere and it's done well and it's done badly. But we have lately, you know, taken the celebrated in air quotes serial killers of our time and made this sort of I don't know if romantic is the right word, but we've sort of um we're casting them in more of a of an amber glow. Well, it's for, slick, right? You yes, know, it's, it's like slick. yeah. So you did so so before I get to the uh, the nonfiction one. So you did watch you watched two episodes. Of well, the- I went back. Okay, so let me just say. So I had some reluctance to see this, um, and then you and I decided that we wanted to watch it. Look, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It yeah. is now the second most watched show in Netflix history. Uh, it. Uh, it edged out Bridgerton. Um, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. By the way, do you know what the number one uh, watch show in Netflix history is? No. It's Stranger Things episode, uh, season four. Is that the latest episode? The latest I think season? so. Yeah. Oh, that's weird because I, <laughs> so I liked Stranger Things. I'd, I'd watched, uh, I think, all three seasons, at least the first two. And then, of course, they had the, um, 
the uh, COVID hiatus. And then it came back on and like the main character dude was now like six, seven. <laughs> and I was like, I'm having a hard time <laughs> watching this and I didn't go back to it. But uh, interesting. Okay. So anyway, it keeps getting bigger and there's more controversy around it, which we'll talk about m- maybe later. But I decided, yeah. okay, you know what? I'm going to watch this. I also, by the way, I'm I'm basically a fan of, of Ryan Murphy's. Um, I thought The People versus O.J. Simpson was exceptional. Was that? I think that was written by my friend uh, Larry Karasuski. Um, I, I, he wrote the big, the big, 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 big uh, OJ uh, documentary starring. Um, well, that there were there were a couple. There was a documentary which was like uh, unbelievable, and at the same time, there was a fictionalized series that was done by Ryan Murphy. Okay, well, that was starring Cuba Gooding Jr. And, yes, that's my friend. My friend Larry wrote that. He was one of the. Okay, well, I yeah. loved that show. That's great. He was. That was fantastic. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I loved it. Great, um, great, great job. So, okay, so I watched it and I I did I watched the first two episodes and I just, you know, I it's almost like my nervous system couldn't take it. Um it was look, the Jeffrey Dahmer story is possibly and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the most gruesome serial killer story that there is somebody that kills 17 people and eats them is there a worse one is there something that is more sensationalized more heinous uh, uh well i will be getting into a little of that a little later okay okay but, but no but yeah but yes and also you know he's sort of this very very average looking dude too right i mean this is the thing serial killers don't walk around with a blood dripping off their mouths, except in his case, it it did occasionally drip out of his mouth. But, you know, the thing is that he was just this sort of like boring, blonde, not completely nondescript. Like you would not, I know, and we're going to get into this. I know that people are like romanticizing this dude, right? They're getting all hot and heavy for him, but he was, you would not have noticed him in a Walmart. Like he doesn't stand out. And I think that, um, well, I, and that's one of the things that I think is incredibly creepy about him. Right. Is that you would never know who this person is. Um, yeah. That, that they, this person would never stand out. You wouldn't be able to pick them out. One of the things that is interesting about this show, and I mean, I think it does. There's a lot of arguments for and against this show. Right. Like watching it, the fact that it exists. Um, one of the arguments for it is that in much the way that Ryan Murphy allowed us to see the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, some of the dynamics around race and gender through um, um, a more modern lens. This is showing us some of the ways that this white guy got away with stuff, even while different people, whether it's like his black neighbor or other different minorities, are saying there's, there, there's something wrong here and they're getting ignored. So at the end wow. of the second episode, so one of the things that that is uh, an ongoing Tension is that Dahmer's neighbor, I don't think he lived right next door to her in real life. I think she lived across the street from him. But anyway, um, she's a black woman and she continues to um, make complaints about about this guy. And there is a young Filipino boy that is like 14 years old and he's been drugged and he escapes and he runs out and he's all bloody and messed up and incoherent. And the cops show up. And this black neighbor, this woman is like, you know, hey, this boy is in trouble. And Jeffrey Dahmer shows up and is like, no, that's my boyfriend. This is just a fight between lovers. 
I, I really thought in my head as I was watching this, this must be cooked up. I, I, I knew that there were a couple of like close calls, but I, I didn't think, you never know what's being fictionalized and what's sure. not. Anyway, part of the standoff here is between the woman that is saying, hey, I think there's something wrong here. And the cop saying, yeah, let us take care of it. They go inside, they look around, nothing's really wrong. They have a couple of like, like this is also taking place during the AIDS era, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of fear around gay yeah. culture. There's a lot of homophobia. Um, one of them makes a crack over the um, the system later, you know, like we're leaving and we're going to get deloused. That's a real comment. Um, anyway, that episode, the second episode ends with an actual call, the actual call from the woman involved calling and saying, hey, what happened with that? with that situation. And the, the cops are like, we took care of it. And she's like, I think that was a child. And they're like, no, we took care of it. And she's like, did you see any ID? Did you, I mean, this woman knows something is wrong. She's trying, and she's so, trying hard. so hard to be respectful and tell them that something is wrong while also being urgent about it. And they don't listen and they totally gaslight her. I mean, and I just, I that thing ended and I was like, the world is dark and I don't know how much more of this I can take. So I, I, I cut it off there. But when you and I decided yesterday that we were going to talk about this a little bit more, I did watch some more. I did watch some more of this and I, I specifically sought out, I skipped ahead and I watched episode six, which is an episode that focuses on one of the victims it kind of tells his story and you know i think this was an extraordinary episode this is a victim who was deaf from uh the time he was an infant because he um was given a treatment that was supposed to cure pneumonia that actually took yeah. away his his hearing um, we see him grow up. We see him apply for jobs as a deaf person. The show does an amazing job of actually, uh, it's a lot of it silent. So you move around through his world. Wow. wow. And a lot of it is done in sign language. Much of the dialogue, especially as he gets um, to know Dahmer, because they... Actually, they knew each other for like a year or two is is what the idea is. Now, this show, this version of the show, this version of the story, excuse me, imagines a deeper relationship between these two people than I suspect existed. But it's one of the few moments when we actually see Jeffrey Dahmer interacting like a human being. They, they go on a date. Um, they're writing to each other in notepads. It's so interesting because watching somebody communicate by actually having to write down something builds up so much dramatic tension <laughs> because we're so used to, first of all, it's just unusual, right? You, you would think in a show like this is deadly to plot development, having to wait to see what somebody says, but it creates so much narrative tension. Oh, I, I um, can imagine. And so anyway, this... It oh oh my gosh! This was an incredibly powerful episode. Um, I cried a couple times. 
I mean, it really, oh, it really affected me. And I think there's, you know, we can talk about whether or not it should have been made and what the moral obligation is to the survivors of these people. But I will tell you, I didn't know the name Tony Hughes, who is and, the name of this victim. Mm-hmm. By the time I watched this show, I loved him. I was stricken. I, I, it was. I, I'm, I'm glad that there's a lot of um, over the top violence in this um, series. Uh, this particular episode of violence is pretty restrained. I think they know. They know that we have come to identify with this character. Um, anyway. Um, so I did, I did watch it. Um, we can talk about whether or not this show is exploitative. I think by its nature, it, it probably is. It's, uh, you know, you can't get around that. Um, the question is, does it also have some value? I, um, I don't know that I can watch all 10 hours. It's just, uh, uh, I will, I will tell you, um, Evan Peters, who yep, plays Jeffrey Dahmer, who people might know from American Horror Story, which is where I met him and thought he was really exceptional in that. Um, he's really good. It's that it's, he's really good. And, and Richard, Richard Jenkins, who plays his father. Who's always good. He's always good. Exceptional. This is one of those actors that you know you know him. You don't exactly, like, maybe you don't know his name. This is what makes a good actor, right? You don't know anything about him. You don't really know where he's from. People mostly know him as the dead father from Six Feet Under. He was in Lost, too. Was he? Yeah, I think so. And I think he also was in this, like horror slasher movie a million years ago called like some babysitter thing. And that was the first time I ever saw him. I was like, this actor's really good. He's really, yeah, Yeah. he's really good. And he's exceptional in this um, playing Lionel Dahmer. By the way, are you familiar with the book that Lionel Dahmer wrote? Uh, He wrote a memoir and it's called A Father's Story. Oh God. And it is, I had to read it in college. Um, for it, for the sensationalism of the subject, it is quite moving, restrained. It is a father's searching, kind of like rigorous search for answers of how his son could do this. Um, I understand why people would be opposed to it. it. It generated some controversy at the time, but you can look at the reviews on on Amazon or Goodreads. I mean, this is this is something that is not sensational. This is somebody that is trying desperately to understand why, what happened. Is it something that he did? He, you know, he he was emotionally removed. Uh, he had a difficult relationship with the um, Dahmer's mother. Um, you know, one of the things that this, one of the reasons that we are drawn to these stories is the hope that we would know why, right. what happened. This is a story that has largely eluded that many of them do. Some of the, 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 the reasons that we are, it doesn't really give you a reason. It sets up a series of different things, right? Like there's the suggestion that maybe there was a, 
He had a double hernia surgery when he was four years old. And this is something that Lionel Dahmer, his father, wonders, you know, like, is that what it could have been? Um, his mother is on more than 20 different pharmaceutical drugs while she's pregnant. Oh, oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. She suffered badly from postpartum depression afterward. This is a time when doctors didn't even know that phrase. And um. I- and so, and, and, you know, the difficulty of these things is that, you know, once you introduce them, then it starts sounding like you're trying to blame, blame the mother, blame, you know, this hernia surgery that, uh, that many other people had and nothing went wrong. But I think it is just human nature. In fact, it's, it's almost in, in, imperative that we search for answers here. There is also the story of his own troubled relationship with his sexuality. Right. He's tortured by that. So I want to pause before we go further with that. And I want to ask, so I didn't watch the documentary that you watched, the three-hour documentary. Right. Does that give any insight into this question of why? So I will say, I I watched all three of the episodes of Gacy. Um, I have had a bit of a busy week, but I could have probably watched at least two of the three hours of Dahmer. I got about 40 minutes into it, and I stopped watching it. Now, I was a little busy, so that might be—I may have stayed with it. But here was the issue I had with it. Um, it was, again, it was, I thought it was well done. It had the same sort of, you know, discovery ID and the way—but what they were doing— that I noticed in this is they were just padding it incredibly, like every small moment, instead of just like, you know, you know, sort of like an article. We can't put every single thing that we've learned in the article, but they right. were. It's the three-part you know, series that should have been the one-hour series. Should, it could have been, it could have been 90 minutes. I mean, that's, yeah. the, I'm just kind of guessing at that. Um, I think that, you know, it's his voice. So they are dramatizing it. So you are seeing like someone playing a young Jeffrey, and but you're also seeing like, real pictures of him when he was a little boy. You were hearing about his mother used to actually hit his father quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see this like little home movies and you can always see like the father like try to put his arm around the mom and be kind of like sweet. And she's just not, she's sort of not around. And and I think that's the impression we get from from Dahmer's own words that he sympathized more with his father and then his mother left and et cetera. Um, Yes, he was very conflicted about um, his sexuality. He was also he was also a loner from a very 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 young age. Like he was, he was an alone kid. Um, I, I may go back and watch the rest of it. It's interesting when you were talking about this. It made me realize that you know whether we talked about the Elvis documentary or the Marilyn Mo- documentary or now about Dahmer, we are, you know, because we have so much opportunity or or the networks have so much need to create content, they, you know, they're going to, they're going to go to their ringers sometimes, right? And the ringers are Marilyn. Like she's going to continue, what is it like, well, plutonium has like a half-life, a quarter-life or whatever, and then you mm-hmm. can just keep getting some energy out of it. And they, they did that with Blonde um, to whether you thought it was to good effect or not. Um, I think it's the number one movie on Is Netflix. it? Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I have to to say that it's it stayed with me more, and I, I talk about it more than I was just actually talking about the uh, the JFK scene with uh with uh Ken who's who's in my uh, my dining room right now. Ken Lane, the great Ken Ugh, Lane. It's um, a terrible scene though. Uh, well, we were talking about the fact, like, dude, you got to try harder than that. But in any case, um, I mean, we're doing this now with uh with Dahmer, and it makes me wonder 
what are we going to be doing 10 years from now? We're, what are we going to be mining? Are we going to be mining Marilyn still? Or, or are we going to be mining Kanye? Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. yeah, something. You know, we're going to have to go back. And, it, and and the story, like when we're with our, you know, grandchildren or you're hanging, and we're like, well, it wasn't exactly like that. But that's what they're going to know because that's how someone chooses to, um, to spin art. I know as someone who has written about murder, I, I know as someone who... You know, a woman dropped her kids off a bridge and the immediate reaction from the media and from the public was evil, crazy, that's it. Like, th- there were no other answers. Nobody was interested in other answers, but in fact, they were. You are, I was, I had to do exactly, I hope, what what the show of Dahmer is doing. You just keep looking at different parts of this story. And if you put enough of them around in the right in the right order, maybe it gives you some insight into why these people did what they did. Now, in terms of, you know, cannibalism, we're, you know, this is, this is going, you know, pretty far. Um, God, that's the problem. The cannibal, I mean, every time you can't, it, it, it comes up in the show. It's just, I want to push out. I, I, there's, it's so hard to make that. Honestly, if like, Believable? I don't know what to say. Like, it's so unbelievable that somebody does that. And, you know, there was an interesting uh, scene in the documentary where he talked about he really wanted to see, he really, really wanted to see like a naked man. He was very, very attracted to the male physique, like a handsome, in shape male physique. And there was a runner in his neighborhood. His parents, meanwhile, his mother had left and taken his little brother and his father moved into a hotel. So Jeffrey is 18, I think, and is living alone in the family house. Yeah. And he lived and there was a, a jogging path and he used to see this jogger and he really, he was attracted. He wanted to see him. Okay. So, all right. Sarah, like, let's say you and I want to see some guy jogger. We want to see him without his shirt on. Like, our minds do not go like, well, what I'm going to do is hide behind a tree and hit him over the head with a with a metal rod. Like, that's mm. not, we're going to go to a bar and take him home and take his shirt off or something, right? Well, Dahmer's mind went to that He because he needed to also be in control. Well, if that's step one, then maybe it isn't so many steps to desecration. And consummation, like consummation in like yes. all the meanings of the word. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, very grateful that I am not someone that you know, that has these predilections or whatever. Um, but I, Let's talk a little bit about the controversy around this. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about um, the family reaction to this. Yeah, I, 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 I have a lot to say that about that because... I've had to deal with that myself in my in my own writing and writing about these very difficult cases. Um, okay, so so can I go through yes, some please, of the different please. reactions? So one yep. of them comes on on Twitter from a cousin of one of the the victims, and his name is Eric Perry, and he says, "I'm not telling anyone what to watch. I know true crime media is huge right now, but if you're actually curious about the victims, my family, the Isbells." pissed about this show. It's re-traumatizing over and over. And for what? How many movies, shows, documentaries do we need? Um, his cousin, Rita Isbell. Um, oh, I watched that. I watched that clip. Uh, so she uh, gave a victim's impact statement at Dahmer's trial, which is recreated almost verbatim in the show. One of the things that the show should be praised for is its... Um, 
how closely it, it sticks to to like sort of the appearance and the facts and what this looked like at the time. Like there's a lot of attention to detail is what I should say. She gave a victim's impact statement in which she, you know, she, she was making the point that like, uh, the, the cops had said, or, or somebody had said Dahmer lost it. And she's like, this is what it means to lose it. And she, and she, she lost she, it. She <laughs> lost it. Yeah. She calls him Satan. She, you know, and, and, and it's, it's quite, um, Shocking. She tries to she tries to attack. I mean, she yeah, she, yeah, she, she lunges at him. She lunges at him. And actually, the clip I saw, which I'll include here in the show notes, and guys, if you aren't reading our show notes, you should be, um, is uh they they juxtapose the the reenactment with the real, with with her really in court doing it. It's 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 worth seeing. It's a short clip, but it was it's uh you know, this rage and this absolute impotence, and what do you what do you do with it? And the person is sitting right in front of you, and of course he's just sitting there looking at his lap. Because I have to say, now, having interviewed a serial killer who was Gacy, who was, you know, very gregarious, admitted nothing, was just like, you know, hey, it's the Uncle Johnny show. Um, Dahmer was not this in the real, and, and I'm sure you saw some of it, when he was being interviewed and he admitted everything he did and admitted his own confusion, he was not proud and uh and and flashy and everything about this he was he was somewhat confused and bereft it seemed i mean i don't know you know i i didn't watch the whole thing but in court when you see people that are sometimes just like oh fuck this shit he he did not seem that he seemed like he knew he should be there and that's you know that's where he should be. And I, and he was going to take his, take all of his lumps and take everybody's opprobrium. Um, so Rita Isbell says, um, she, she, uh, gave an interview to insider magazine. She says, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that was me speaking of the, oh, wow. The show. Wow. Um, she says I was never contacted about the show. I feel like Netflix should have asked if we mind or how we felt about making it. They didn't ask me anything. They just did it. Um, and you had a comment yesterday when we were texting um, that you said some like they've brought in something like three hundred million dollars, or they spent thirty million dollars. Well, or what Ryan was it? Murphy has a three hundred million dollar deal with Netflix. That's what this comes from. I don't know how many shows he's supposed to do, but three hundred million dollars is what he's getting. And and my question is, because I am. I am slight, like, I think a lot about how we write about other people, whose stories belong to us, what it means to do right by the people that you, whose stories you share. And so my question was, it doesn't seem unrealistic to me to set up some sort of uh, remuneration, some sort of money for the victims here. It's Am I being unrealistic? No, it's you're not. It's just very, I think it's very tricky. I think it's very tricky because, wow, God, this is, this is a longer and deeper conversation. If, you know, you're going to remunerate people because they've, you know, they've had someone in their family killed, first of all, how do you decide that? Is Does this in any way, I know this sounds absolutely macabre, but does it in any way like encourage people to like, either lie about having someone, you know, people like, people lie like, oh yeah, this happened to my family and it didn't happen at all. Um, I also, you know, I was in this position when I was writing about Amanda and the children and I received many, many, many emails and letters and everything saying, if you do not give every penny that you earn from that book to those children, you're a monster. 
And it's like, well, you know, that's not that's not the way it works. Um, I did. I actually wrote a piece recent that was in 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 Reason, and I and I'll tell you what I did do is, and I'm not sorry, I'm not trying to waylay this upon myself, but it's somewhat germane. Is I made a piece of work that allowed people to see some things that happened, but it also allowed the children to know about each other because there were children that they didn't even know they had siblings. They all reached out to me, and I was able to put these children in touch with each other. So that is something that. I was able to do with my work that was that was not money, but it was sort of like a a, a a result of doing the work. I don't know how a Ryan Murphy sets up. I don't know, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer's story is in the public domain in a sense, right? No, it is. It it is. It and is. it's 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 news, it's history. Yeah, I mean, you, this is I understand this is a a courtroom drama that is available on YouTube. Like, you know, I understand that, but the I I also wonder what is your obligation to let these families know. That I agree. I, okay. I actually think that is that would That's, be stunning. I actually think okay. I think you do let the families know. I definitely do. I think. I mean, I don't know the legalities of all of that stuff. I don't know what kind of doors. I'm sure the lawyers have thought about it. It's like, well, if we let you know, if we let. Rita Isbell know, then what is she going to ask of us? And what kind of pre-fluff is she going to make? Do we have to have her sign an NDA? It's It would be extremely complicated. But I do think it is not particularly fair to land on people who have had their loved ones murdered uh, with this, you know, gigantic blockbuster story that everybody's talking about and you didn't even know. That's You didn't that's even very, tell them that it was coming. Rough. That's very rough. I don't, Sarah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that, except that you've got to do good work. You have to do work. You know, it's interesting that you said, you know, this one episode six where they, where they humanize it. If, may I, may I read a little something from an article that I sent you yesterday? Yeah. It, it has to do with a couple of things. It has to do with number one. What is the obligation of, the, you know, you and I are incredibly obsessed with what is your obligation and your responsibility as a journalist? Like, whose story are you telling it? How are you telling it? Why are you telling it as carefully as you can? Are you like, are you blinkered by what you're telling? I, I wrote a I wrote a book review um, and overlaps with Dahmer's kind of case, but it also overlaps with what I think is just, well, let me just read it. Um, uh, it was a book called The Man and the Monster. I'm going to read the opening and a few little parts. In 1987, Michael Ross was sentenced to death by a Connecticut judge for the rape, torture, and murder of eight young women between the ages of 14 and 25. Nine years later, a staunch opposition to capital punishment compelled Martha Elliott to cultivate a relationship with Ross. This is Elliot writing. This is the story of how I set out to write a story about a monster and met a man, she says of the 10 years she corresponded, spoke, and visited with Ross. This man is not in evidence on the page. With the exception of dutifully watching over his family's chicken farm as a boy, Ross shows no measure of humanity. He raped an uncounted number of women around the Cornell University campus before graduating to the murder of eight others chosen at random in upstate New York and Connecticut. He found the woman's terror and humanity humiliation, in quotes, delicious. He killed with brutality. He sometimes visited the corpses as they decomposed. All right, one more little section. Um, uh, this is me talking now. I did not figuratively back out of the room after reading ad nauseum about Ross's comp compulsive 
masturbation. One hesitates to think how many times Ms. Elliot had to hear about it. Nor after learning that during one attack, Ross threatened to smash the skull of a seven-month-old baby if its mother did not shut up and perform oral sex on him. I did, however, begin to have serious concerns about where Ms. Elliot had led us during her last visit with Ross before his execution in 2005, when she tells him, and even though I hate roller coasters, I wouldn't have missed this one for the world. I feel confident saying that most people impacted by Michael Ross would have been very happy to miss it, to have never known his name. Mm -hmm. So here's a woman who believes her extra dose of humanity is going to, she's going to humanize this person. I I felt that was kind of um I felt that that was a Incomplete. real dis- a real disservice to his victims like for sure like it it was crazy but I'm going to read one more thing because it has to do with you saying in in episode 6 what they did and humanized uh Hughes Tony, Tony, Hughes. Tony Hughes okay so this is me writing again if we are going to pay attention to killers, it seems incumbent on the writer to offer some illumination, but illumination requires contrast, and Ms. Elliott has a hard time looking away from her subject. Victims are briefly commemorated, usually in a page or less. We are not in the territory of lost girls. Robert Kolker's deeply reported and humane book about the victims of an unidentified serial killer in New York. When Ms. Elliott does finally visit with the parents of 14-year-old Leslie Shelley, Ross's last victim, she is able to draw a beautiful portrait of their pain. I was moved learning how Ed Shelley, a man of limited means, bought a French bedroom set for his daughter after she had been missing two weeks, a gift for when she finally came home. The book would have been well-served by having more such moments and earlier. This is this is absolutely critical to to the writer. You know, we have the big spotlight on Jeffrey Dahmer. The show is called, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes or the serial. Well, whatever. this is monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Dahmer, yeah. Dahmer, 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 Dahmer. Well, you know, the reason we're talking about him is because he what he did to other people. And I think it is completely incumbent, as I wrote there on the writer. To give some measure of honor to these people. This is not this is not the Jeffrey Dahmer show. And one of the things that I read in passing, you know, I just saw it on Twitter was you like fair enough. And that's what what Murphy has said he wanted to do. But this person said, you know, you can't honor the victim's story and show their skulls. Oh, man. Holy shit, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. That's, I, I have that's to say right. that was hard for me to argue with, and um, that's right. That, that, that's that's hard right. for me to argue with. Um, you know, uh, as much as I loved that episode, and loved is really the word. I I really truly was moved by this episode six. Um, uh, the mother of Tony Hughes, whose name is Shirley Hughes, uh, told the Guardian earlier this week, uh, it didn't happen like that. I don't see how they can do that. Uh, she then ended the call before saying, um, uh, but before doing that said, I don't see the, I don't see how they can use our names and put stuff out there like that. So what she's referring to here is that there was a storyline built around her son's possible relationship with Dahmer. It is speculative. They did know each other. Dahmer went to a dance club where Tony often went, but it is it is a made up story. It 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 happens to humanize 
Tony, <laughs> a character that I loved, like I said. Um, however, if you are Tony's mother, uh, you may be rightly outraged that this shit is Hollywood. It's interesting that this is exactly why I was drawn to the nonfiction because you know, it's nonfiction and we're, we're hoping that they are, you know, completely sticking to the facts. Of course, they have to edit it and everything, but there's not going to be any of that. They're not going to insert that. And if it's going to be speculative, they're going to tell you it's speculative. So it's like, okay, so maybe that's more of, of my cup of tea. I feel like I can trust it more. Is it going to be less painful for the mother? Maybe. I don't know. She's lost her son. And that said, you know, if someone does an incredible job with this story, I mean, is it possible, do you think, Sarah, that that it could have given her some, some solace if told, even if it was slightly speculative, if they could have if they could have done it with enough beauty and care in its handling that it would have I don't know, it wouldn't have just been painful. I'll be curious how she feels when some time passes as this story. Re- brings her son to life in a way that she would not have chosen, but yet celebrates his gifts. I wonder if there might be some healing in that. I don't want to be presumptive, but in other words, we never know where the story ends exactly. This is what she said to the guy from the guardian when he cold called her in the middle of the day and she didn't want to be on the phone. Are you um, saying like now someone, someone's, you know, art begets art, right? So someone uh, sees this and well, you, you hi, Sarah Hepla, you hi. are, hi, you are the, <laughs> you are the person in, in a sense. You've seen this, you've fallen in love with Tony Hughes. Maybe you're going to write something about Tony Hughes. You, well, you don't know, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I just, I'm saying you don't know where this is going. And this did bring attention to the victims' names in a way that I did not know before. I only know, I uh, honestly, I only knew horrific Polaroid shots yeah. of these young men. And I, I know something different now. And, you know, we get a snapshot of a time when a lot of these men were cast aside in society. Um because they were gay, because they were poor. Um, so and uh, anyway, um, two more controversies before we leave this show. One of them is that, you know, Netflix got into a lot of trouble. Well, I don't know if that's even true. Netflix got some backlash on Twitter. It's uh, it's unclear to me how much Wait, backlash, backlash it re- on Twitter. This is the what? thing. I know. Well, let me just finish <laughs> what it is. So um, they put the LGBTQ tag on this. Oh, right. And then it's like, we don't want... We, look, this is we not want, the representation we want. We want to be paid, paid attention not, to, but not, not that guy. <laughs> that guy. More representation, except for that except, one. Except for that guy. Um, <laughs> I so I that. saw the, the headlines, you know, and, and then when, when they were putting the tweets in there of, of people that were, quote unquote, outraged by this, I kept going to the accounts and the, the biggest one, the one that seems to have started this whole thing, got 189 likes. And I'm like, well, that ain't exactly viral. They have a cat photo no. that's got more than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other ones had like 11 likes. And I'm thinking, you know, I think what happened here is it generated some conversation. There's a, a, Netflix, as soon as it starts to get into the the press, the press takes notice of this. And then Netflix, I think wisely, is just sort of like, this is very low stakes for us. Let's untag it. Screw it. Yeah. 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 I mean, who cares? 
Who cares? I, I actually think there is there is an argument for the LGBTQ. This is not it's not it's not superficial. This this actually deals with gay men in America, not just Jeffrey Dahmer. We're talking about his victims. Um, but you know, low stakes, let it go. Uh, the other thing that I'm not sure how pervasive it is either, but you've got some girls on TikTok that are cooing over Evan Peters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's some like maybe some Dahmer. You know, whatever. Look, TikTok girl's gonna TikTok. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, where, what was the um, what did I send you yesterday? Let me uh, find it. Uh, I took a clip. Oh yeah, from, from my Gacy piece. Where is it at? I think I, I think I typed it out to you. Um, okay. So this is from um. This is the piece I wrote about uh, John Wayne Gacy. Uh, the Inkland and, and his, by the way, his pen pal that I traveled across country with, his name was Rick. All right. So the inclination to imbue the incarcerated with special insight into our private lives is not uncommon. In Northern California, Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, a murderer and Satanist who killed as many as 30, was coveted by dozens of women. For them, the relationship was ideal. They chose when to be accessible. They didn't have sex with Ramirez. They were in control, just as Rick was in control of his relationship with Gacy. After all, killers call collect. So the the deal is that now we're in another, you know, with Gacy, it was back in the in the early 90s, mid-90s. TikTok, it's now just very performative. It's not like you're even, you don't even have to take the time to find out the prisoners, you know, APR, whatever number it is in jail and, and, and write to them. You can just like bring your cooing and fawning to TikTok. I mean, it's, it's, it's moronic. I mean, it is. I mean, I can understand if they have a crush on the actor. Okay. No, I think a lot of them have a crush on the actor. I think no, we need to fine. clarify here. Evan Peters is, has been a little bit of a, of a heartthrob um, because of his recurring roles on various uh, seasons of American Horror Story. And, you know, th- there's a, a lot of what we're seeing on TikTok is sort of like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer's a creep, but mm, that Evan Peters. I mean, come on. Okay. What are they, of course they're going to say fine. that. That's fine. That's fine. We've seen, look at natural born killers or whatever, you know, so, you know, uh, the godfather, you know, we, people are gunning people down, right? Well, oh, but he's so hot. Okay. That's fine. Um, I oh, wanted that's to- right. Robert De Niro, my Robert oh, De Niro fetish. God, he on. can kill oh, anyone and I yeah. still think he's hot. I mean, we, this is the problem. This is the problem. He's so hot. He's so hot. The head what? and the heart and the loins are not necessarily connected. Um, you know, look, we- I'm just warning the, the 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 readers now. We're going to have a gratuitous photo of Robert De Niro in the show notes. I've I've made that decision. Good for the 42s. Um, I wanted to talk just super quickly about you know why people pick the stories they do. They pick stories uh, because they you know some of them because they're genuinely interested or they really, really think their readers are going to be interested and that's why they write it. And I think other people pick what's going to be the most like appalling and incendiary kind of thing that they can in order to um, impress their listeners or readers. And um, as a as a really a fun follow uh, yesterday on, on Twitter wrote, uh, Alex Jones, he, he fucking find out. Well, he fucked and found oh, God. out. I I believe, I, I don't know a lot about Alex Jones. I never listened to his show. I certainly, of course, know who he is. But his picking the fact to say uh, the murder of those children was faked. Was From Sandy Hook. This, 
this is completely what's going to get me the biggest bang what's going to get my my ideological or sad followers the most head up how am i going to be make the biggest you know splash that i can oh i know i'll pick murdered children well I, I I have to say I have sympathy for a lot of people, almost all people, and I and I'm and I I'm sure his life is hell right now, but fuck him, because these people's kids are dead, and he now owes them a billion dollars. It's nine hundred. Okay, yeah. So so in case you don't know what we're talking about here, the right. the um <laughs> the decision was handed down in a in a in a case against Alex Jones, um that he is ordered to pay nine hundred and sixty five million dollars in damages to the plaintiffs of the defamation trial. And this is around Sandy Hook. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I wanted to find out what, what was his reaction to this. So I was poking around this morning a little bit. He was on the air when he got this this um, this settlement or not settlement, this this uh, decision. And he said, they want to scare us away from questioning Uvalde or Parkland. We're not going away. We're not going to stop. The forces of Satan are trying to drive the world into thermonuclear war. So calm, rational, reasonable, everything we've come to expect from the Alex Jones brand. This is bullshit. Um, he also said, do these people think they're actually getting any money? And he asked for donations from his listenership. And he'll so get them. So he's a and real he, piece of work. And he will get them. Uh, and I, I think that when your, your fuel for your brand are um, gunned down children, your your people that are supporting you should probably take a pretty good look at themselves and maybe go maybe go do something a little better with their time and their money. I, I'm sorry, I'm, you know what what is again? My aperture is open. I can barely I can <clears throat> I can barely talk about it, and it uh it ties in a little bit with um. So the story I'm writing right now about the woman that was murdered uh, in Portland, uh, the, the uh, Portland Freedom Fund, um, who bailed out her killer, though he had six domestic violence uh, uh, arrests against her in a year. And uh, the Portland Freedom Fund decided he was like a really, really good bet. Well, the person they had bailed out before then uh, was a guy named, what was his name? Uh, Malik Fard Mohammed, who had traveled uh, from his home, I think in Indianapolis, to Portland during the riots in order to throw Molotov cocktails at the police. So he was also, uh, he they bailed him out for $215,000 um, a while ago. Well, he was sent to jail for 10 years. But they bailed him out because he was like the poster child for like the, you know, the revolution in Portland. Like, yeah, we're going to show we're going to show how how ideologically driven we are. We're going to stand by our principles for better justice, that people like this have historically been kept down, and we're going to stand by them, even though he's throwing Molotov cocktails at the police. But of course, since the police are the enemy in Portland, uh, you know, he was going to be a hero. Well, that came back to bite them because they had to lose that money because he's sent to jail for, for 10 years. Then you've got to fork over that bond, that bail. Um, but now the same thing's happened with the, the murder of this woman. I, I I I think I think people have to stop looking for the biggest shiniest thing that they think are gonna like it's gonna shine their star. Yeah, sorry, it's a little maddening. I know that the the connection is a little bit tenuous uh, between Jones and Portland Freedom Fund, but it 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 seemed to me it was people picking the the. I felt like it was clout chasing. The war, yeah, it was the worst thing. Like they picked the absolute worst thing they could in order for they because they knew that their followers were gonna go yeah. And it's like, well, if it comes back to bite you in the ass, good. 
good. Do some do some fucking good in the world. Sorry, we cursed. I cursed. Um, we. I like that you said we cursed. <laughs> we did that together. Hey, it's the 42s. Sarah, what By the way, we- you're going to confuse everybody because, <laughs> because the actual number on this podcast is going to be like <laughs> 38 or 39. I know. Because we, have, we two- have other bonus episodes that don't go in. And so you're confusing everybody. I'm They're going to think you're insane. I'm sorry, Sarah. What's the name of this podcast? Oh, baby. It's called Smoke Them If You Got Them. <laughs> okay, okay. I was confused. Um, uh, we wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about one other bit of journalistic malfeasance uh, that I I thought was, when I saw it, I can't believe I didn't send it to you immediately because I was so, I was so infuriated. And that was um, John Stewart the other day. Uh, My gr- former big crush. I, I used Are to you, think this was the Sarah? man. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I thought this Sarah. was the guy that I was. Don't. He was great once. Don't was even. He? But he, but yeah, like, and he, I mean, he's short, funny Jewish guy. I mean, he's hilarious. He's cute. He was totally my guy. Wow. I, I you know, I kind of missed the whole, I wasn't watching television or whatever that era. I mean, obviously I knew it was. You didn't was, watch but, The Daily Show? No. Mm, interesting. No, I didn't know. I it didn't. I yeah. I never. I yeah. I was, yeah. Well, no, I, didn't. I was definitely on the Daily Show train, and I loved him. In fact, I loved John Stewart. Um, before he did the Daily Show, he had his own show called the John Stewart Show, which I watched in college. I had a thing for that guy. Well, good. Then you're going to have. I'm. I'm going to be interested to hear what you say because I know you've seen the clip. So he has a new. He has a new show out called The Problem with John Stewart, which I think. <laughs> like 14 people are watching but in any uh, case he 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 uh he he interviewed I'm putting interview in air quotes the um the attorney general of of, of Arkansas the other day her name is Leslie Rutledge and he wanted to talk to her <clears throat> about the fact that they were I guess uh outlawing uh gender care or they they weren't going to have the state pay for it I'm not exactly sure what it was but it was it was not going to be easy to get uh what what would you Gender, what do they call it? Gender affirmation. Gender affirming care. So you know, I don't know, Sarah. I, I've pro- I've probably interviewed several thousand people, as have you. Um, the job of the interviewer is to, well, first of all, do a little homework, obviously, so that you're not just like running in cold. Unless you're, I don't know. Sometimes you do do cold interviews because something happens in, in the middle of the street. Um, but to go in, you know, with kind of some questions you want to ask. But really, the mo- thing you have to do most is have curiosity because you don't want to lead the conversation anywhere. You don't want to say like, well, I've got these boxes I need to check, so I'll do that. Um, John Stewart, I have never, I have never in my life seen an interviewer be as snotty as John really? Stewart was I mean, and dismissive. He says to smug. her, He's he says it. to her, you know, he names all these things like, why would you override the experts? And she's like, well... I'm not overriding them. I'm telling you, we had like all kinds of other people testify saying that they did not feel this was so and we need more data. And he's like, you, you know, you know, that's not true. It's like, what? He was, he it's was. A, it's a sick burn interview. It's a gotcha interview. Well, but and it also accomplished nothing. She, I mean, in that interview, the only person that came off looking balanced and uh, maybe trying to, to, to actually have a conversation here was the AG. Um, 
But here's I don't what know really- that she comes off that well either, to be honest with you. I thought she came off as a little bit underinformed. Well, she was underinformed in that he was asking her, he was like citing like the endocrine society and the American pediatrics and that, which we're going to link the uh, Reuters article that came out on the 7th, which is an incredible article about uh, gender affirmation and transitioning. It is the best article I think I've seen uh, about where the data is now, what our numbers are, what people are, what what um, institutions are trying to do things like kind of slowly and which are doing it. Like, I guess it's a Dutch study. It was like 18 months. Have people come in? Let's talk about the history. Let's talk about where they are. Do they have other presenting problems? Is there depression? Like, let's like take the time to really figure out where these kids are. Some of them are 12, some of them are nine, some of them are 15. Like, let's really, before we start doing things that are irreversible, that's in that's in Holland. And then we have certain places here in the States where it's, it's one interview, it's two hours before they will start giving you um, hormones. I The Reuters piece is good. It's long. It's, it's very long. Thorough, but one of the things, and one of the things that you come away from that... Uh, I came away from was just the fundamental uncertainty about this topic. Everybody is desperate to have a moral certainty as well as just like an answer to fix this. And we simply don't have it. And that is my problem with what Jon Stewart said in that interview. Absolutely. Um, I think he actually showed... um, he showed a lot of control in his interviewing techniques. I think you could admire him for that. Oh wow! I I think you God, could. I, I think oh you could. Sarah, I I I cannot tell you know. So this is interesting because when I first saw it, I saw people like saying this is how you do it. I saw Dan Rather you know saying this is you know he should be commended for this. I saw someone else saying this is a master class in interviewing. I was appalled at what he was doing. That wasn't an interview. That that was not an interview. That was like, you sit in the hot seat here and I am going to tell you the way it actually is and why you're a liar. That's what I saw. That that was someone that had moral certainty on their side and therefore didn't think that uh, a true uh, investigation of curiosity was necessary. He thought that he was, it was his job to offer a corrective. Um, I happen to disagree with him. I disagree with him. I think the big mistake in that is the smugness. And I think it's it's wrong. And I think it's also not who he used to be. Well, we know that. I mean, I, again, I, I didn't watch his show, but I certainly am aware of who he was. I've seen John Stewart be funny and like super quick, like quick. He always struck me as like had that kind of like wry thing. And he was very, very funny. He's not he's not funny anymore. He's well, it's sour. Not funny. It's not funny. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm sad about John Stewart. Well, I don't think you're the only one. I don't no. think you're the only one. I think people are sad about NPR. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I used to work as a baker when I was 24. I would get in there at 4.30 in the morning, turn on NPR and listen to it for four hours. And it was fan- like, I felt like I could like get, understand the world. And I liked the people that were talking to me and it felt, it felt kind of rounded. I don't, I don't think NPR is what it was. I could be wrong. It could no, be that I've changed, which I, I mean, I'm not. sure I have. Um, but one thing you were saying about the, about the Reuters piece. Now, you know, you're saying John Stewart is coming in, you know, he's going to be the corrective. Well, here's the thing. All right. Puberty blockers and sex hormones have not been FDA approved. Not that I'm like some big proponent of the FDA and think they do everything in a great way or 
or in a timely way. But it's a bit of the Wild West out there. There, are, there is not data. Of course, there's not data on the long-term effects of giving, giving them to children. We because, haven't had enough time. <laughs> because we haven't had enough time. Puberty blah, or blah hormones used to be taken by people like in their 30s or something, right? You wanted to grow breasts or you wanted to grow chest hair. Um, f- fertility and sexual functions, we don't know. What's going to happen with this? There's some pretty bad uh, early data about what happens there. Um, it's just it's just too early to tell. And to say that there was a there was a quote from some doctor that was saying like, you know, these kids come in and they truly they truly understand the risks. I'm like, so these teenagers that need to transition. They truly understand the risks. Or is like they like, have consent right. of, they, and, and bodily autonomy and all the, and, and cognitive function before they're 18, whereas we have a legal line drawn for everybody else. That's right. Every other teenager you won't even trust with the fucking keys to the car. But these, <laughs> but these kids, we're going to trust that they should alter their bodies forever. Not, and maybe, okay, maybe not their, just their bodies, but if we don't know what's happening with their reproductive systems, then then for any future generations, because there's not gonna, they're not gonna produce a future generation. I am, I err on the side of more data, especially for doing something that's irre- irreversible. And to people that I'm sorry, I, I, <sighs> If some of the things I thought I wanted to happen at 14 had happened, I'd be dead now, okay? I did not have judgment. I don't think I had really, I've said this before on the show, I don't think I had, I don't think I became an adult until I was 25 years old or until I became a mother. I really don't. Uh, I just was, my brain just hadn't really kicked in yet. Um, I I think it's a bad idea. But, But that said, that said, the Reuters article, the the uh, young woman that was the profile of it, Racy, or I can't I can't remember how to pronounce her name. Me neither. Racy. Ro- it, 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 it had a it had an unusual spelling. Yeah. Was, in my estimation, a very very good, solid candidate to transition at a young age. She had you yeah. know she was she was the person that. That, you know, from age four and consistently with parents who were confused but but stood by her. I, I mean, really, it's really actually probably the best profile I've seen of someone that you're like, okay, I'm I'm kind of all in on this. Yeah, I agree. For this that. child. So, you know, it's you know, the article's really worth reading. I we should have, I should have, we should have tagged. Well, actually, I don't know if it was out the last time we recorded, but it, it's really well worth reading. It's it's the best that that I've seen um so far that addresses this. You know, I don't like talking about this I subject. Know, you know I that. Know, I know, I know. And and the reason that I don't is that I think that I don't I have I have friends who are trans and I have friends whose kids are trans and I have friends whose kids say they're trans. I, I have I have friends on all sides of this thing and I have so much sympathy with them for going into and through a situation where the what's going to happen and what's the right thing are just absolutely a judgment call and they want so badly to lean on the 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 moral certainty or the you know like I got yes. it right or whatever the truth is is that nobody ever knows that nobody ever knows that and this is the burden of parenthood as i was reading this you know what i was thinking about a little bit I was thinking a little bit about uh, 
the the number of kids that were put on AD ADD oh. medication. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, that was another thing that that there was a generation of kids that were put on a medication that we didn't really fully know the uh, outcomes of that. And we were told it was because of like they had a, a biological deficiency or excess or whatever. Um, you know, I've 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 seen kids thrive because of that medication. I've also seen kids get into a kind of dem- law of diminishing returns where they're just doing more and more drugs to kind of get more and more results. Um, when we do this, it it's nothing, nothing here is without consequence. We just don't know what the consequence will be. And for me, you know, I think this is a very, it's just a very high stakes conversation. I think one of my other parts of my discomfort is that I live in Texas. Texas yeah. has been grossly reactionary on this subject. You know, they have, uh, made, there, there has been a law that was basically passed. It's now being fought in court that basically criminalizes uh, a child transitioning and that the CPS services were empowered to investigate parents for this. There's a there's a great story in the Washington Post by uh, someone in the Austin Bureau of CPS that that came out as trans, a trans man, and then was asked to investigate families that were transitioning the kids and it's it's heartbreaking and this person eventually leaves cps um this child protective services thank you yeah um uh, and you know this is now being it's it's actually held up in in court right now um so i think it's been it's been blocked for a little bit but anyway you know the fear that these parents have in addition to whatever moral and emotional corkscrew they're in around what's happening in their in their family and their children, it just makes me sick. Do you so think that- I don't so oh, and one of the other things I want to say is that you know, our system is set up as a sort of kind of checks and balances so that we would balance, you know, one side pulls the other a little bit farther, one pulls the other, and we get into a kind of center position. That's the way that our system is built. Now that we're in this states creating their own laws, that check and balance isn't happening. In fact, we're going to the opposite directions. California is reacting to Texas. Of course. That's right. We're not getting pulled into the center. We're getting farther pulled out into the polls where, you know, California is saying, hey, come to California. You don't need your parents' permission. And Texas is saying, well, we'll investigate your family if they do this. This is, I'm sick of this. I can't stand it. And so that is one of the reasons why I don't like talking about this. Um, I do think, for what it's worth, this is one of the most fascinating, complicated human stories that is going on right now. For me to claim any authority on it would be, I'm sorry, it would be hypocritical. I have a question for you. Do you believe, I mean, we know it's ideological. We know states are being pulled and that's because also the states are going to fight about anything. It's like orange soda, no grape soda. I mean, it, at this point, it's just- I hope I'm just in the grape so, soda. Me yeah. too. No, actually, I love orange. You, grape, orange. Okay, I'll take grape. Perfect. Um, do you think that 
once there is more data, which we are starting to compile now because we have vast, more, vastly more numbers of, of young people wanting to transition. We have vastly more numbers of places that are able to do this or, or want to do this. Um, do you think when we start having more data, maybe it's two years from now, maybe it's five years from now, do you think Texas will be like, okay, all right, we we have we have some more information here. We feel a little more comfortable relaxing our laws, or is it has it become purely an ideological football? What do you think? Well, I think we're going this direction. I, I don't actually think we put the there. This is not. There will be some brakes tapped. I think there will be some corrections. Uh, you know, you've seen that in Finland and Sweden where they've slowed down this right. process. That's right. They put they put the brakes on. They, they were the... very forward thinking. And then it was like, you know what? We need to know. And then, of course, what happened in England? Tavistock, oh, yeah. In England, think, yeah. England shut which, down Tavistock. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like the was their main, one. Yeah. The main but gender clinic. What's happened is that a lot of people, and this has been predicted. I mean, this isn't something you and I are saying. People are like, there's going to be lawsuits. There are going to be young oh, there people will be. that are like, Look, I was 15 and I know I wanted this, but somebody should have fucking stopped me. I, I don't know. And they'll start to regulate it and we'll get yep. some checks and balances on this yep. whole process, but I don't think it's going back. So, yes, I think Texas will eventually loosen up what they're doing. I don't think they're going to keep this criminalized. That's ridiculous. Uh, I don't I don't think the people of Texas want it to be criminalized. Um, and and I also think there's going to be more. Uh, caution on the other end of things. Yeah, I, th I think it'll it'll come back into the balance that I wish it had now. And I hope I would hope on the other end. I would hope you know in California. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that they would say, look, like we have to, we have to, we've got to be, we want to be useful, but we also want to really be helpful. Not helpful like right now. We want to be helpful to these people for their whole lives. And I just don't. I don't think we have the information yet. So I wanted to say first of all. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Yesterday's um, yesterday's uh, open thread, which was cake or pie. Ooh, doggy! I think pie's winning. But what fabulous, what fabulous uh, comments we got there! Um, it was super fun. And super pie did come fun. out a very strong oh, winter winner there. Just, yeah, the, the the Jesse Owens of desserts. Um, yeah. Um, but I wanted to say that the previous episode was. I I was extremely moved by the um the care and time that people took in their comments um mm -hmm. whether they were talking about uh the um the uh, organic chemistry professor and why they had slightly differing views than maybe I had or you had and why it really maybe wasn't necessary and they had experience here but especially about um, men without work and NILFs, uh, not in labor force people. We received um, a bunch of comments that were extremely moving. And uh, with your permission, or we've agreed about, I'm going to I'm going to read a few of them, Sarah. Is that is that okay here? With my permission? With your permission? Well, we, we yeah, I, I permit you to read someone else's <laughs> comment. We're going to just we've I think we're presuming no, permission okay. on the part Look, of our listeners. We won't use last names, right? We'll no, just no, no, use the no, first we're not. Names. We're not. Um, so Chris wrote, um, and by the way, to all the people whose comments I'm reading. Thank you so much. Um, we love you. We love we your do. comments. We, lo we love, we love reading them. We have we, such a smart, good-hearted audience. Yeah, it's pretty we, damn cool. We love our crew. All right. So Chris wrote, this episode was really great and actually something I really needed. I'm a man who has always struggled with self-esteem and am a highly sensitive 
person, capitalized, uh, which means my brain is wired to take everything personally. I wish every day that wasn't the case. It really did a number on me emotionally when a lot of my female friends in real life, people who have been in my home and or I have done favors for, would post about how sick of white men they were and how there should be a moratorium on hiring men for jobs and show photos of their male tears coffee mugs. When I was looking for a job, I've never been a NILF. Going online would feel like walking in a minefield, and the despair I was feeling was actually funny to people I thought were my friends. I have so much more to say about this, but I'll just say this. I appreciate Smoke'em, if you got him, and Feminine Chaos, and a special place in hell for not making me feel terrible about myself. Um, you know, Chris... All these th- those other podcasts that you you mentioned, we think those women are amazing. I feel very um, I feel very privileged to be able to have these conversations. Actually, to have something sort of come across our view or Sarah's view, and then talk about it either in a smart way or not even a very smart way, and then to have you add this, we just keep the conversation going. And I actually think this is incredibly important conversation when you're talking one in seven American men. I I think this is, I think this is a crisis. Mm. For years, I've been watching stuff that's been going on on Twitter and wondering like, what do guys think about this? Like this sort of clamoring, you know, all these things that he's talking about. And all I can think is, I mean, it's, it's basic, but it's just also like human decency, which is like, what would I be thinking if people were saying this about women? And it's like, I am also an HSP, highly sensitive person. And, you know, I I can remember growing up and and hearing things like girls are I I do remember hearing things like girls are weak or girls are dumb or girls are gross or things like that and it always penetrated right into my bones. Um well I think we put that in the show notes or I wrote it somewhere. Oh I I wrote a I wrote a post on my my Substack yesterday. Like if if people continually tell you you're not needed. Continue not only are you not needed, you're the problem. You know, at a certain point it's like Okay, you know, like I'll I'll dip. I'll, you know, I'll I'll go watch television, I'll do drugs, I'll disappear from your life because obviously I'm not I'm not wanted here. Um, okay, I could we have another another comment from Alan. Thank you, Alan. Um the description of backing out of the room is really apt. I have become less social and engaged in communities that I used to be active in because I get tired of hearing my demographic run down and the sense that if I protest, I will just be exhibiting toxic masculinity. I'm not a NILF, a term that amuses me because I unpack it to nobody I'd like to. <laughs> but right. And it actually it stands for what? N- it, not, not, it, not, not, in, not in labor force. Yeah. Um, but I do plan on leaving the labor force as soon as I feel I can afford to and regularly fantasize about retiring somewhere rural where I can just be alone to pursue my interests without bothering anyone or dealing with anyone being bothered. I don't plan on living my life and obsessing on others' disdain, but I do feel tribeless and resented and do organize my life around minimizing how much that affects me. And I am Gen X and can remember better times when we had subcultures that mattered more than sex or race. I think if I had come of age starting in 2021, I might have internalized the messaging in an even less healthy way. I, this is this is crushing. Mm. I, you know, people have to be kinder. And I, and I actually see it as a, I, I see it as a symptom of people's own weakness um, when they when they put others down, mm-hmm. whether it's men or 
a different race or gender or anything, when you have to put others down, that that that's a fake movement, man. That's a movement based on your insecurity. That's what, I mean, would you agree with that? Like, how is it, how is it strong? How is it strong to flaunt a male tears cup? It's adolescent rebellion. It's, it's just, it's, it's nonsense. It's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. And it's, if, it's the logic of they did it to us, we'll do it to them. It's, well, it's, it's juvenile. It's bigger than that. It's juvenile. It's juvenile. Okay, I'm um, going to read, go for it. Go. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, one thing that I was reminded of years ago, my book club, my all female book club read a book called When We Were Fem, or We Were Feminist Once by Andy Ziesler, who I think is the. I know former, her. Yeah, she's the former uh, editor her. of Bitch. Bitch, yeah. Um, and, you know, it talked about the co-option of, of feminism into a kind of market feminism anyway. Um, we, the, the, the whole book club, uh, when we got together and people were getting like, you know, wind up and stuff like that. Getting, <laughs> that would get, be getting their wine on. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just sort of like, and men do this and men do that. And there was just a lot of like men, 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 you know, we, and, and it was just a bitch session. And I interrupted everybody and I said, hey. I'm just curious, how many of you guys would prefer to be men than women? Not a hand. No well, one wanted, no one would rather be a guy. So what, what, what and do you say? I, I'm, I'm saying that it was very interesting to me that the whole thing was about how men had all these things and these privileges and they got to do all these things. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> interesting. So I thought nobody, they were just... Nobody wanted to, to, to do that, to trade. Huh. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, you couldn't wear a dress. You couldn't wear makeup. <laughs> like, you yes, couldn't. you can. Yeah, I've, um, this was a few years ago. Yeah, pre-Harry uh, Styles. Anyway. To, yeah, we've, we've talked about the, the and you know what? People like to complain. They just like to complain. I don't know, especially when they get in groups. So um, I'm going to read a last one. Thank you, Alan, for your, for your comments. Let's please keep them coming. We love having them and we do read all of them. Um, this was something that I didn't actually get in the comments. I got in a DM over on Twitter from someone I haven't seen in a number of years, a guy who I, I adore. Um, we just have, we've just lost touch, which is fine. We live in different places now, but this is what he wrote. He said, your smoke em episode about men out of the workforce hit me hard. My older brother has been a NILF since the beginning of COVID and it's destroying his life. He sits around chain smoking in his living room, watching cable news and arguing politics on Facebook all day. His 19-year-old daughter takes care of him, cooks, laundry, cleans, etc. He's not elderly or disabled. He just isn't willing to take a shitty job, but is also not willing to try to work up a ladder or learn something new. My mother enables him by giving him money with the excuse that she is helping her granddaughter. But the granddaughter is the responsible breadwinner and won't move out of the house because she feels obligated to take care of her dad. It drives me crazy. Thank you for addressing this on the pod. I'd actually like to address it further. If I could get people's stories, um, whether it's their own stories or uh, stories of people they know, I would I would happily, you know, put it together, um, whether it's for something I write journalistically or just mm -hmm. on my blog or here. Um, because I, I, I got to tell you, you know, Nicholas Eberstadt's book, Men Without Work, we'll, we'll link it again. These numbers are startling. They are startling. When it, it was like one in 22 men in 19, I can't remember, it was 45 or 55 were, didn't work, American men. Now it's one in seven. Mm -hmm. When you have one in seven American men of working age not working, you are not 
they are not going to a good place. Society is not going to a pl- good place, and the economy is not going to a good place. And these, and when when Eberstadt writes, they're 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 leading or they're having deaths of despair. It is people need to feel people need to feel appreciated. They need to feel like they are part of the social dynamic. They need to feel like they're wanted, and everybody needs to feel that. Everybody needs to feel that. And when we keep telling people they're not needed, then they're going to just, they're going to shrivel and die. So we need you. We need, we you. need you. We do. They're, men are very necessary. So um, um, uh, before we get to our hot boxes, I have something akin to a hot box. And, I, and I'm so sorry you were not on this text thread the other night, Sarah Heppola, but in fact, you were not. Oh my God. It was about 11 o'clock at out. night. You shut me 11, out. I did. We shut you out. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And I had just gotten the comment from Chris saying how he um, really appreciated Smoke Em If You Got Him and Feminine Chaos and a Special Place in Hell. So I decided to send a little um, a little text to both Kat Rosenfield of um, Feminine, Feminine Chaos. Chaos and Megan Down of A Special Place in Hell because I had their numbers. And I, uh, I started a little text chain. And um, one of the things I, I sent them was... That fan art that someone sent. <laughs> yeah. You. Okay. Yeah. So here's, yeah. and we will, I think we will include it here. I think we should. I think we should include a picture of it because, first of all, guys, you want to make fan art? Please Thanks. do it. I love it. So I, I, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm just going to put it in the show notes and so people can see it. But I did say, uh, check this out. Some fan art someone sent to Sarah Heppola. Sarah says it looks like an exploding vagina. And cats. There's, well, there's a volcano behind it. Yeah, but it, it it's it's a vaginal volcano, a double V. Uh, and and cat said, well, it doesn't not look like an exploding vagina. And Megan said, it's as if Georgia O'Keeffe had made '80s silkscreen T-shirts. So, but in the midst of having this conversation, uh, Megan downloaded the idea that we should uh we should all do a live show together. That's a great idea. So I think we uh, we uh, we might start getting that in the works. And until then, because that's going to take a little while, holidays, we all live other parts of the country, so people have kids, and apparently dogs. Uh, the, the big thing, Kat and, and Megan are like, what am I going to do? Well, what do I do with my dog, right? Um, but I think, uh, Sarah, were we planning on doing something next Wednesday night? I, I thought uh, it was Tuesday. I thought, I, I, do I have the oh. date wrong? The nineteenth. I thought we I better thought was, get the we better get the right I, date yeah, because right the date. answer is yes, we are. Yes, we are. I but think it's what's the, the? I'm waiting for my calendar to come back up. Okay, I think it's. I think tomorrow's. I don't know. It's the nineteenth, correct? Yeah. It's Wednesday. It's a Wednesday. Nancy is correct. What are we going to do, Sarah? We're going to do a little listener hangout. Come That's hang right. out with us. Yeah, we're let's have do- a party. Yeah, I think we're going to, it's probably a subscribers only, paid subscribers yeah, only. Yeah, subscribers paid, only. Paid subscribers only. We're going to, I guess, I don't know if we're going to do it on Zoom or Twitch or something. We'll figure it out. And um, we'll do a little what hangout. What time are we going to do it? We are going to do you say you were going to do it 9 p.m. Eastern? Yes, 9 p.m. Eastern. I hope that works for people. That'll I think be it 8 p.m. Right? my time. Right. 6 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. Yeah, we'll do a little hang. Be our little first one, so uh, maybe we'll make it. Maybe we'll make it a thing. Yeah, so, uh, we'll we'll cook up some some fun things to do, and uh, we'd and, love to uh, talk yeah. to you. And we'll send out a link. We'll send out a link when that when that's ready. Um. So, Madame, what's in uh what's in your hot box this week? 
In my hot box is... I needed to cleanse my palate from the Dahmer experience, and I watched an absolutely delightful Netflix stand-up special by the stand-up comedian Hassan Minaj. Do you know him? I know the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know why so though. I, oh, I didn't know him though because he was on the Daily Show from 2014 to 2018 when I wasn't really watching it. Um, he is Indian American. And he uh, did a show that was called Patriot Act on Netflix, which I, I saw, but I never like, I mean, I saw it around. <laughs> he related, I saw it in he... the Netflix neighborhood. I passed it and was like, what's up, Patriot Act? <laughs> in the hall. You'll in the hall. <laughs> what up? <laughs> but I ne- but I never I never watched it. And uh, he has a new stand up. So I did one of those things where I was like, OK, what's up with that guy? And I watched The King's Jester. I loved this. This was oh, this had awesome. several laugh out loud funny moments for me. I mean, first of all, it's just uh, really good natured comedy. Oh, um, it's about his love for his wife and his child and his fertility problems and his fear of fatherhood and his own weird body images. <laughs> um, um, and I, I, I loved all of this stuff. I think he represents a new kind of masculinity or I'm seeing men talk about things that they didn't used to talk about stuff that only women talked about. I love seeing men talk about this stuff. It's super important, but especially because he can be funny about it. Um, he was absolutely cracking me up with some of his stuff around. Like he got really into like takedowns, like taking down people. And he, he, he's so funny about like, um, his like total insatiable thirst for clout and adulation. Like he's really, really funny about the way that, you know, like Instagram likes and stuff are just, they're like this maw that you can't stop. It's like filling. the rat with, rat with cocaine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and he, and he has these beautiful modulated moments that take you from like how funny that is in the roar of like, yeah, he's really like, he's, he's sticking it to the man. And then it's really just about his ego. And then like, sometimes it endangers his family and you you, oh, you watch oh. him you watch him sort of ride the like he modulates this so well um i just thought it was great storytelling really engaging storytelling very funny moving sad sweet all the things i loved it i i love i love seeing you right now and hearing how absolutely enthusiastic and up you are talking about this Netflix show as opposed to how we started the episode with like a I I Um, well in my hot box so some people may know I'm sure I've mentioned it I go up to the Rhinebeck New York area a lot there's a train station up there in Rhinecliff and it's a small little old train station you know it's it's cute and there's there's a bookshelf there which you know people leave their books and you can take a book and sometimes there's good books and sometimes there's just like you know pamphlets for God. But this past week when I was getting the train, actually yesterday, somebody came and brought their freaking entire fantastic library. Well, I don't know if it's entire, but there were dozens and dozens and dozens of fabulous books there, including the two that I took. I took two Martin Amos novels. I took Time's Arrow and I took the information. Mm. So I, my experience with Amos is that I've loved his nonfiction. I loved his um, his memoir. I think it was called Experience, maybe? I can't, I can't remember. We'll put a link, of course. And I loved Koba the Dread, uh, which is about Stalin. Koba the Dread, Laughter, and the, and the 20 Million. 
Um, and I've read essays that he's written. I've always liked it. But the one time I tried to read his fiction was a book called Money. And it was in 1997. And I remember actually taking the book and throwing it across the room, like literally throwing the book across the room because I hated it so much. So last night, Michael Moynihan was here because the fifth column, actually all three fifth column guys were here yesterday uh, filming it. Camille's usually not here because he doesn't live close by. Oh yeah. I actually, I was out. I came home from dinner and I had four guys sitting in my apartment, which I kind of love. Anyway, um, when they finished taping, Michael saw my books. He's like, oh, are you reading this? I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't really like his fiction before. And I told him how I threw the book across money. He's like, well, do you know the story, Nancy? His father, Kingsley A. Miss Martin, he was his father, one of the you know great mm-hmm. British novelists, disliked Martin Amos's fiction so much, and I believe it was also money that he threw it across the room. I'm like, oh, okay. Hey, so look at you in the, in the long story uh, tradition of Kingsley Amos. There we go. But I will say, I've just started um, the information. I have laughed out loud several times, and it's the right. You, you actual lol. Oh, I, are we allowed to do that? No thumbs up, right? No thumbs up, though. Not if you don't want to look old. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let me just finish. So, anyway, it's the writing is magnificent. It's flying past. It's so freaking smart. So, super, super big thumbs up. Sop because I'm old, uh, for, for Martin Amos. Yeah. So anyway, you sent me that article yesterday about, uh, in the daily mail about the emojis that, that, that the, you know, Gen Z or whoever it is are finding, uh, uh, intimidating or, um, no, they can't. Yeah. They, they find the thumbs up emoji, passive aggressive, and also only old people use it. And same with the heart emoji, which I friggin' use, like, I'm so, so insatiable with that one. I just, it's such heart, 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 heart. The I 10 just, that they had, of the 10 they had, I, the heart is the only one used. They had like the poop emoji. Who would oh use yeah, that? I don't use that. It's disgusting and other things, but um, I do use the heart and I'm going to keep using the heart because because we love everybody and we love having you here and we are really looking forward to seeing you uh, next Wednesday. We'll, we'll figure out where it's going to be. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already. We always leave the buttons there. It, Buttons. Buttons. Uh, buttons. They're easy to click. Uh, tell your friends, share it, become a page subscriber. And um, Sarah, uh, thank you for the recommendation. I'll try to watch the um I'll try to watch the comedy um this weekend. Thank you. And uh everybody have a good weekend. Heart emoji. Heart emoji. Bye.